If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Oliver Cromwell is one of the most famous figures in history, but his reputation and legacy continue to be disputed. In the first volume of a new biography of Cromwell, the historian Ronald Hutton revisits the first part of his career in an attempt to disentangle the man from the myth. Ronald's also written the cover feature on Cromwell for the August issue of BBC History magazine, and for today's episode, he spoke to the magazine's editor, Rob Attar. Ronald, as you mentioned in your piece for the magazine, countless biographies have been written about Oliver Cromwell. What is there, do you think, new to say about him? I think the only really effective new way of looking at Oliver is to try and cut yourself loose from looking at his own words, because he left more letters and speeches than pretty well any statesman before the 19th century. And they are beautifully written and beautifully spoken, passionate and eloquent and convincing. And he has a very packed life. So if you're writing a full biography, the temptation is to use Oliver's letters and speeches as the scaffolding in which you hang the whole narrative and the interpretation. But I was worried by the fact that his contemporaries often regarded him as unusually duplicitous and untrustworthy and secretive, even for a politician. And so I thought I would look at a manageable period, that is, his rise to power up to the end of the great civil war between Cavalier and Roundhead, and try and contextualise his actions and words through the eyes of others. And that way, try and get a new perspective on him. And I, I think I probably succeeded. So why do you think so many past biographers have relied so much on his own words? For two reasons. The first is that his own words are remarkably compelling. He was a superb, emotional, eloquent, persuasive speaker and writer, very often with uh, an unpolished, rough, direct, demagogic, very modern idiom. And also, he was on the right side of history, 
in that the causes that he seemed to adopt, that of greater democracy and accountability of government to the people, and greater religious liberty for a, a diversity of opinions, were the causes that triumphed in the 19th century and underlie our modern idea of what a nation should be. So in that sense, he looks like a father of modernity. But you feel it's important not to take Cromwell at his word. So do you think he was someone who was particularly insincere in his speeches and writing? I think that I agree with his many contemporaries who thought him so. He wasn't a hypocrite in the literal sense. He was as passionately religious as his writings make him. But the unfortunate thing there for him and for us is that by regarding himself as an instrument of God and somebody on a hot line to God, he ended up very much in the position of thinking that whatever he did, as long as it worked, must mean that God was on his side and approved of him, and therefore his enemies must be God's enemies. Your book starts, obviously, with Cromwell's early life, How much do we actually know about his formative years? We know very little at all. We have a few rather dry legal documents stretching over the first 40 years of his life on which we can hang all sorts of different accounts. For example, when his enemies and his friends wrote about his childhood and youth, Pretty well universally, the enemy said that he was the representative of all that most was most dreadful in a young person. Lechery, violence, selfishness, irreverence, impiety. His friends made him an absolute model of a dutiful, pious, parent-loving, well-behaved young man. Uh, what's the truth? We'll never know. And from what we know about his youth, which I realise isn't much... Do we get any signs that he was on the path to greatness? None whatsoever. Uh, What we have on the whole is a portrait of a loser, a young man born with a silver spoon in his mouth because of a rich uncle who owns the county. Uncle goes bust when Oliver is nearing 30. Oliver loses his temper with his fellow local politicians really badly and stupidly and gets kicked out of the local county community. He's a broken man who moves as a working tenant farmer to a small town further down river from where he's grown up and seems broken for good. But he's saved by his religious conversion, which convinces him that God has laid him low just to raise him up for a great divine purpose. And also, he is literally remade by fortune in that uh, an uncle of his dies and he lands an inheritance. And his conversion to hardline, radical, evangelical, Puritan politics introduces him to a network of ambitious new friends who notes that he's got talents of persuasion and of leadership and get him into Parliament. And do we know what inspired his religious conversion? No, it's part of the prehistoric Cromwell. It's part of the lost years. Uh, We can say that it almost certainly happens after he's been booted out of his hometown and lost his position. 
And it's when he's living in this tiny market town on the River Ouse called St. Ives that uh, he, almost certainly there, he meets born-again evangelical Puritan English people and they convert him and he becomes part of their network. So what is his career as an MP like early on? At what point does he start making waves in Parliament? He makes waves virtually from day one when he identifies himself very strongly, as he was elected to do, with those who want quite radical reformation in the church in particular, to get rid of bishops and cathedrals and a lot of rituals, and substitute uh, a pared-down church based on preaching and the Bible with less control from above. And he believes passionately in that for the rest of his life. He takes up the cause of radicals who've been persecuted by the government in the previous 10 years, and gradually making a few early mistakes with his usual early rashness, uh, speaking too violently, criticising people too harshly. He still gets forgiven. And after two years, he's one of the most reliable people in the parliamentary party, which is about to fight the King Charles I in the Civil War. A patient, dependable committee man, somebody who can take messages to the House of Lords, somebody who turns up day after day, works hard and votes the right way. And at this point, is he already setting himself against the king, even before the civil war broke out? We can't really tell. He's certainly setting himself against the king's church. But whether that's the same thing as setting himself against the king in other ways, we don't know. But quite clearly, his desire for religious reformation collides with the king's instincts in general. And so he ends up opposed to the king in general. And when the Civil War does actually break out, how important a figure is Cromwell on the parliamentarian side at this point? You could pretty well write the history of uh, the beginning of the English Civil War without mentioning him. He's a reliable MP of the second or third rank. He's not a leader. And when he joyously heads off into the counties to become a soldier and fight for Parliament on the ground, he is simply an obscure local commander. He emerges as one of the most active and effective cavalry captains and colonels in East Anglia, his home patch. But he's more obscure than scores of other local parliamentarian officers. It really takes him over a year before he starts to build up a reputation. And that's largely because his side starts losing. It's defeated in a number of battles. A lot of its supporters are discredited or defect or just give up and go passive. And Cromwell's one of those who identify himself as ready to fight in the last ditch. And he is a superlative leader of men. He does train an excellent, enormous, utterly loyal, very effective cavalry regiment, leads it superbly, and eventually gets hired to lead the cavalry and the new army, which Parliament builds up out of East Anglia. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And when Oliver looks back on this a couple of days later, 
He doesn't regret a single loss of life. He says God made them a stubble to our swords. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. From what you've been saying about his early life, is it somewhat of a surprise that he goes on to become this great military leader? Yes, it's an immense surprise because he has no military experience whatsoever. And he's shown no apparent interest in being a soldier. But he's a man of violent passions. He's got a savage streak. When he has his conversion instantly, while he's still an obscure guy living in St. Ives, people who have a different view of the Church of England from his are simply the enemies of God. So to him, the world is divided between utter good and utter evil. He's on the side of utter good, the other's on the side of utter evil. And when the country starts to divide, to him, the king's followers are simply evil people, and he believes in treating them as harshly as possible. And once he becomes a soldier, he rejoices in killing them. Other parliamentarian commanders can describe the civil war as a war without an enemy. They realise they still have old friends on the other side. Oliver hasn't. He sees the enemy as God's enemies, to be annihilated as brutally as needs be. And so just to be clear, are we saying that Cromwell actively massacred people, you know, when they had already surrendered, prisoners, things like that? No, he doesn't do that. uh, But he's not inclined to take prisoners. He prefers cutting down as many people on the battlefield as possible. In the very first skirmish, that he wins uh, at a small place in Lincolnshire. He enjoys cutting down the fleeing enemy, and he describes avidly how he did execution on them for six or seven miles. In his next skirmish, when he leads a charge into the back 
of a body of enemies taking them by surprise and scattering them. The enemy commander gets bogged down in a mire at the bottom of the hill. And he'd be a great prize to be captured and ransomed. But one of Oliver's men cuts him down. And as the man is lying wounded on the ground, finishes him off. And Oliver, instead of regretting this, describes greedily how uh, his officer uh, struck him under the short ribs, thereby mirroring the Old Testament idea of smiting people under the fifth rib. So this guy is an enemy of God. He's going to die. That's Oliver's approach. And at his first really great battle, that of Marston Moor, when Oliver is in command of four or five thousand horsemen on the left wing and overpower and destroy an outnumbered body of royalists opposite them and start to slaughter the royalist army, it's the biggest massacre on a battlefield possibly in English history, certainly in the Civil War. The death toll is about four to 6,000, and it's the work of Oliver's men, Oliver's particular army, that go on killing right into the night. And when Oliver looks back on this a couple of days later, he doesn't regret a single loss of life. He says, God made them a stubble to our swords, and recalls how a dying young officer on his side says the one thing he regrets before he dies is he couldn't kill more of them. Was this brutality an effective military strategy or did it have any well, any downsides in terms of your people would fight to the death against them? It was effective in the sense that it killed off a lot of useful enemy soldiers. It did give him a reputation as a hard man. He was particularly loathed by the other side for his brutality, uh, both when killing soldiers and when pushing civilians around. There were plenty of hard men on Parliament's side, but Oliver stood out among them as exceptionally severe. And he had another trait which doesn't uh, show up in most of the traditional biographies, and that is he was a relentless self-promoter. He worked out very soon, this was the first great age of the press, of mass communication through pamphlets and newspapers. And he made sure that he or his friends had a hotline to the national newspapers so that in every engagement in which he took part, he was given credit for victory, even if on the ground he was just one of a number of leaders and wasn't in charge and it wasn't actually his men who carried out the decisive blow uh, when the press took it up. Oliver had been brief that he was responsible for everything. In his own letters, he glossed actions that actually turned out to be disastrous defeats as being sensational victories. Does these um, writings and this, this PR campaign, has that actually given us a, an opinion of Cromwell as a more successful military commander than he actually was? He was a very successful military commander. It's just that Oliver presented himself as infallible and also the guy responsible for all the victories all the way through. And that was an exaggeration. But his talent is unmistakable. And once he had risen to a point where he was in charge, he didn't need to adopt this tactic any longer. Uh, his own gifts and his own leadership was so effective that uh, it spoke for itself. 
but he still made sure that the best possible presentation of his men's achievements got to press. And when you were talking about the brutality earlier, does that prefigure perhaps the most notorious incidents in his career, which were his campaigns in Ireland? Yes, uh, I'd make two contributions to that. Uh, The first is that Ireland is not exceptional in his career. He certainly commits massacres on a scale of Ireland, which he does not in England. But the killer instinct, the desire to treat the enemy as dehumanised or demonic is already there. It's his way of waging war. And his performance at Drogheda, which is the town where he actually orders a massacre, I think is classic. He loses his temper. Uh, He says, in the heat of the moment, he gave orders not to spare anybody in the town who were in arms. And that was an invitation to kill the entire garrison, which is close to what happened. And as his men looted the town, which is their reward for storming it after a hard fight, clearly quite a few civilians got killed as well as collateral damage. You've talked a lot about how Cromwell treated his enemies, but how well did he actually get on with the other commanders and soldiers on his own side? Once again, he was absolutely ruthless. He was a good talent spotter. He hired extremely able subordinates in his regiment and in his army. And as long as he had a superior officer whom he regarded as competent and a supporter of his political religious aims, he was extremely loyal. Uh, He served with a general called Sir William Waller in the West and obeyed him carefully, although admittedly it didn't last very long, the campaign didn't last very long. But famously, in the glorious year of victories which ended the war and won it for Parliament, he was the right-hand man of Thomas Fairfax. And Thomas Fairfax was not only a very gifted commander whom Cromwell trusted, but he promoted Cromwell's cause at every turn and also backed his political and religious ambitions. So when Cromwell got an ideal commander, he was a perfect lieutenant. But when Cromwell fell out with the commander, he did everything he could to destroy him. And he destroyed a succession of leaders. Uh, There was a man called uh, Colonel John Hovham, up in the East Midlands, and Cromwell had him arrested for alleged correspondence with the enemy. Uh, This actually, ironically, tipped Hubbard into trying to change sides. In reality, uh, he didn't manage to get away. He was then put on trial for his life, and Cromwell gave evidence to have him beheaded, which is what happened. His second target is a a Lincolnshire nobleman called uh, Lord Willoughby, who Cromwell thought was an aristocratic dimwit. He was also in the way of Cromwell's ambitions. And so Cromwell told a string of lies to Parliament that Willoughby had surrendered uh, the city of Lincoln when Cromwell was about to relieve it and rescue Willoughby. This was a complete lie. Cromwell was nowhere near it and could never have relieved it. But it did the trick and Willoughby got sacked. And finally, most famously, he turned on the Earl of Manchester, the leader of the great army of the Eastern Association, which Cromwell got his first big command of cavalry, and told a series of lies about Manchester's performance, which we can disprove. That didn't quite work. Manchester fought back. 
And so Cromwell then uh, cooked up a scheme with his friends to get everybody who held a parliamentary place in the Lords or Commons to resign together. Um, that got rid of Manchester. It almost got rid of Cromwell, but he was lucky and got brought back. So considering he had these traits for cruelty, duplicity, and sometimes revenge, I suppose, how was it that he managed to maintain a number of friends still? Cromwell was very loyal to able friends. And he was a great faction leader as well as a great military leader. If you stuck by Cromwell, Cromwell got you promoted. Cromwell got you loot. Cromwell got you rich. So those who were loyal to Cromwell and able went a very long way with him. And as a politician, he knew how to wheel and deal, to talk allies over. He was excellent at being all things to all men, as the occasion demanded. He could build a coalition by trying to reassure all members in it that he actually believed in everything that they believed. He was a superb manipulator. These are very great gifts. His talents as a politician were as great as his talents as a soldier. And overall, how instrumental would you say Cromwell was in the royalist defeat in the Civil War? That's a very hard question to answer. Uh, because it presupposes that Parliament couldn't have found another able cavalry commander. Uh, There were people around who probably have done as well as Cromwell did in the battles. So Parliament did not win the Civil War because Cromwell happened to be the person in charge at the right moment. But Cromwell was a politician as well as a soldier. And so the fact that Cromwell's gifts undoubtedly did show themselves superlatively on these vital military occasions also built up Cromwell's party, his faction, in Parliament and helped it become dominant. So if a different soldier had been in charge, if that soldier were pretty competent, they'd probably have won the actions that Cromwell won. But the results on politics would have been negligible, whereas with Cromwell winning them, they became considerable. And in your book, you write that Cromwell was both godly and wily. How is it possible for someone to embody those two traits? It's very easy to be godly and wily if you believe that you have a wily god who is completely on your side and promoting you, who believes that God if you look at the Old Testament, is a committer of atrocities himself. He can commit genocide and Noah's flood. Uh, He is a ruthless politician operating with a system of favoritism and a divine brilliance. And in many ways, in divine ruthlessness, calculation and absolute fixity of purpose, Cromwell is in many ways a miniature Jehovah. That was Ronald Hutton. His book, The Making of Oliver Cromwell, will be published on the 10th of August by Yale University Press. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read Ronald's article in the August issue of BBC History magazine, which also includes pieces on the French Revolution, the first Tokyo Olympics, the Benin Bronzes and much more. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Sarah Ferguson, Duchess of York, about her brand new historical novel. Mm-hmm.